What effect will a strong US dollar have on international markets? Should you be using AIM shares to reduce inheritance tax? And is a slump in emerging markets a good entry point? Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle. And joining me today are Taha Lockhandweller, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Ryan Hughes, Head of Active Portfolios at AJ Bell Investments. At the start of this year, the US dollar was relatively weak against other currencies, but the last few months have seen it strengthen substantially. Ryan, what's been driving this dollar strength against other currencies? I think one of the main factors we've seen is the is the real uh, impact of uh, of Trump's policies. Uh, we've had the much heralded tax cut come through, and that really seemed to have given a boost to the U.S. economy, both U.S. corporates that are uh, that our profits are uh, increasing, uh, and also the U.S. consumer that seems like they've decided to spend uh, some of the windfall of the economic changes that have come through. So this is leading on quite nicely to improve U.S. growth, uh, and we've seen a four percent GDP number uh, in the last. Uh, in the last print, uh, which is clearly um, very, very strong, uh, and uh, and inflation is running you know, quite, quite, quite nicely, uh, and also we've seen the U.S. central bank look to increase uh, interest rates, and so all of these factors combine to make the dollar uh, attractive, which really since April uh, has driven that quite a lot higher. Okay, as you're saying, it sounds like there's quite a few things causing this. Does that mean that we're likely to see a strong dollar continuing? We've certainly seen a, a strong indication from the Federal Reserve that they would like to increase interest rates further, both through the rest of 2018 and into 2019. Uh, and that's looking like maybe two more rate rises uh, this year, uh, and the rate is currently at 2%, uh, and maybe an ex- additional three or four rate rises in 2019. So with that backdrop, that does look to make the US dollar uh, attractive, uh, both, I think, to domestic investors and overseas investors. Uh, and that should... Uh, it, in theory, underpin the US dollar and potentially push it higher from here, albeit it's already rallied quite strongly in the last couple of months. And you mentioned, um, you know, the effect of some of Trump's policies. But one of the other big things is um, this this trade war that people are worried about. So how much do you think that um, the US dollar strength is to do with investors wanting to hold US assets because they think it's a safe haven? I think it's, it's probably a combination of a couple of factors. Uh, so certainly the US dollar would act, uh, I would expect, as a, as a safe haven should global trade, uh, like you mentioned, become more challenged and the trade war um, escalates. Uh, but also, I think if, if you look at uh, the yields available around the world on, on government debt, you can now get 3% on a 10-year uh, US Treasury, uh, far in excess of what you can get in other developed markets. And that makes it attractive, uh, again, uh, for those that are looking to invest in fixed interest. And you've also got a, uh, a booming um, U.S. economy, as we've mentioned, where, where companies are making significant profits. Uh, so there's, I think it's uh, absolutely uh, right that the assets look, a, look attractive and, and no reason why you know, that can't continue, certainly in the short term. Longer term, I think that, that it does pose some other problems, uh, but that, that's something perhaps for another day. OK, um, well, maybe just touching it a little bit, you know, what kind of problems could it pose? I think that the challenge we've got, if the trade war really escalates, is what impact does that have on global growth? Uh, and, and how much uh, does that take off global GDP? Uh, and then if you if you extrapolate that out, you, you have to ask the question, can the US keep growing almost in isolation if the rest of the world is slowing? Now, the US economy, despite being the largest economy in the world, is actually a very insular economy and is very reliant on domestic demand. Uh, and so it might be able to continue that growth for a while. 
but should that, that domestic demand slow down uh, and the trade war escalate e- even further, then you would have to say that ultimately the US would have to slow uh, alongside the rest of the world. But I think for the, in the short term, it probably can continue to, to power ahead alone while the rest of the world looks a little bit more challenged. Okay. Um, so if you're saying in that short sort of medium term, it could continue to get stronger, the US dollar, what kind of assets will do well? Um, and what kind of assets do you think will do less well? The main beneficiary, given the nature of the US economy, is actually US equities. They've performed incredibly well uh, over the last few years. And I, I think with, with the strong dollar, we would expect those to continue uh, to do the same and underpinned by business investment uh, and personal consumption. Uh, that should be good for domestic US equities and their profits to continue to grow. Uh, and of course, that, that tax cut benefit, whilst it's effectively a big one-off benefit, uh, it should uh, actually help push that consumption further and therefore profit grow again. So US equities look attractive, albeit from a very expensive base. Certainly the areas that are more challenged are are really um, commodity markets. They they struggle in the the face of a very strong dollar. And you've seen the gold price fall back to around $1,200 at the moment. And it was uh, around 1300 for quite a long period. So gold and other commodities uh, would be more challenged. Uh, and the other area that's really struggling uh, is emerging markets, some some countries in particular, uh, and some Asian countries, particularly those that have got uh, debt issued in US dollars, uh, where their repayments to their to the debt holders are now looking considerably more expensive as the dollars rallied. And so um, you mentioned US equities are likely to benefit. What kind of funds would you use to get exposure? So there's a couple of funds that we have on the AJ Bell favourite funds list, uh, which is our uh, our list of funds that we think are interesting for our, for our investors to look at. I think one of the main benef- beneficiaries on there would be the Artemis US Select Fund. Uh, that's managed by Cormac Weldon and a very, very experienced team. Uh, they have a growth bias to their investment style, and that, that should be a style that, that would benefit from uh, the continued expansion of the of US profits uh, there. And they've done very well in, in getting exposure to particular technology names uh, and so on that have really been driving the market higher. Now, we've been talking about the US, but here in the UK, we've had our own currency issues with uncertainty around Brexit and the pound has fallen below 130 for a first time in a while. So what impact will the strength of the dollar have on sterling based assets, do you think? It's one of those strange uh, quandaries that you have in the market where actually weak sterling is good for large cap UK equities. Uh, and, and that's because so many of the profits, so much of the profits uh, of, of large cap UK listed companies come from overseas. So about 70% of the profits in the FTSE 100 are actually generated outside of the UK. And a lot of that is in US dollars. So when we convert those profits from US dollars back to sterling, those profits get a boost uh, through, the, through the weaker sterling or the stronger dollar, whichever side we want to look at that. Uh, and therefore, these companies continue to do very well. So weak sterling is good for the FTSE 100. It might be more challenged for other parts of the market. Uh, but certainly, if you're a large cap investor, you've seen a benefit from that weak sterling. Uh, and given Brexit negotiations and where we are on that, you know, that's something that could persist uh, over the next few months and, and maybe those profits get a further boost uh, to help underpin the FTSE 100. Okay. Um, so does that mean that you think that UK investors should head share classes in funds as this might neutralise the impact of currency moves or, as you're saying, because we've got this sort of you know unusual dynamic potentially, should they not head share classes? Uh, hedging currencies is a hugely complex area uh, and one that's fraught with danger um, if you 
get it wrong. Uh, you may miss out on substantial returns uh, if you get that wrong. Um, so it's one that's very, very difficult. Right now, I think it's particularly challenged because of the nature of the Brexit negotiations. You know, essentially, the market is waiting on a binary outcome event. If the negotiations go badly uh, and we crash out with no deal, I would certainly expect sterling to weaken further from here. That, again, would boost the FTSE 100 profits uh, of those overseas earnings. So that may be beneficial to UK large cap, certainly in the short term. If we get a deal, uh, and it's a deal that, that the market thinks is sustainable and likes, we could see sterling rally very sharply against the US dollar and other currencies, in which case that would be negative uh, for uh, FTSE 100 companies, but maybe positive for other parts of the market. So if you're choosing to hedge uh, right now, you need to be fairly certain of how the Brexit negotiations are going to go. Uh, and I've certainly not met anyone who's certain about how that's going to play out over the next few months. Yeah. So um, does that mean that you think just basically it's just best not to hedge at all then? I think it depends on your risk appetite and, and your risk tolerance. If, if you're very, very worried about the impact of currency movements um, on your portfolio, then by all means hedge uh, because you're taking away one of those risks. But you need to understand the consequence that that might come with. So if I look at the Japanese market over the last three years, if you're investing in a hedge share class, you actually had a return that was 50% lower over the last three years and if you'd simply invested on an unhedged basis. Uh, so it, it really can have a very material impact uh, on the returns you get. Uh, but of course, if you're very worried about it, then simply by hedging, you will neutralise that risk. And um, are there actually many funds that offer hedge share classes? Um, there, there are there are quite a few. I'd say it's a growing number of, uh, of funds uh, out there. Uh, I mentioned previously the Artemis US Select Fund. Uh, that, that does have um, head share class uh, availability. Um, looking at other markets, Leg Mason Japan. Again, you've got a choice of hedged or unhedged. Uh, Vanguard in the passive space, their global fixed interest strategy uh, has a hedged uh, share class. So there are, there are a whole wide variety uh, around different markets where you can neutralise that currency risk if you want to. Okay, thanks very much, Ryan. Now, growing numbers of families are getting caught out by inheritance tax. The latest figures show a record £5 billion was paid last financial year, which was 8% higher than the previous financial year, to the taxman. But Taha has been looking at one way which may help you reduce your tax liability. What is this, Taha? Um, so this is investing in AIM stocks. So this is the alternative investment market, which uh, many of our listeners might be aware of, is just a, a sub-index below what's listed on the, the FTSE, um, the London Stock Exchange, which is just a sub-index compared to what's li- listed on the traditional London Stock Exchange. But what these offer is um, something called business property relief. And this was a rule that was created in the 70s. And what it was designed to do was allow companies to be passed on to children, etc., when when the owner died uh, without incurring inheritance tax because it just made sense for business continuity. But what happens now is that this can be applied to a range of AIM stocks. So about two-thirds of the 1,200 AIM stocks that are out there um, can qualify for business property relief, assuming that they meet certain complex criteria. But that there, there are some stocks out there that qualify for this and investors who aren't even linked to that company can now buy and then therefore have their capital exempt from inheritance tax as well. Okay. And what kind of companies tend to be listed on the AIM market? Because it's a lower level of the London Stock Exchange. So it tends to be smaller companies and newer companies. And the reason for this is that it's a lot cheaper to get listed on the AIM than it is to get listed on the on the London Stock Exchange. It's also less onerous. There are fewer reporting uh, requirements and things like that. So it's a bit easier. So you tend to find slightly more nascent companies and 
smaller ones as well that just perhaps don't have the the track record or the capital to or even need the capital to to go full blown listing and since they're smaller and as you say might not have as long tr- of a track record does that mean they tend to be higher risk then than companies listed on main london stock exchange uh it's- probably safe to assume so um just given the the very nature so obviously there are some companies on there that are, will be very fast growing and they'll be using the aim as a stepping stone to get uh, to go into the full-blown uh, london stock exchange but at the same time if you on aggregate you they tend to be a lot more volatile as, as you would expect with smaller companies so just um just taking some figures over three years the FTSE all shares outperformed the FTSE aim by 122 to 49 and over five years, that's 252 to 88. So you can see that, you know, investing in the more traditional London Stock Exchange has definitely been more beneficial. But obviously, there are added advantages to investing in the aim that don't exist by investing in the normal FTSE. Yeah. And as you mentioned, um, BPR relief on some companies is one of them. So if you you know, are convinced of wanting to use an AIM, sh- AIM shares, how easy is it to do this? What's the market like? Um, so... It's it's easy in a sense that if you want to buy your own AIM stocks, you can do this via an ISA and you've been able to do this for the last five years. In fact, this month was the uh, the five-year anniversary of when uh, AIM stocks were allowed to be bought via an ISA. Uh, but obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the problem is finding out which companies qualify. Uh, there's, this is quite complex. There are certain requirements set out by HMRC as to which companies can qualify. Um, also, it's an ever-changing uh, market. So if a company qualifies today for bpi it might not qualify tomorrow so you have to you have to manage this quite carefully and be, be very aware of what you're buying and what you're not if that's not your bag then there's a, a handful of ready-made portfolios that you can buy as a private investor um via via some platforms that are out there um there aren't that many um unfortunately so i've, I've done some research and i found about five that you can buy via an isa and four that you can buy outside of an isa um but if you go via financial advisor, then the market opens up a bit more. A lot of the big wealth managers offer an AIM inheritance tax service where they, they pick AIM stocks deliberately for inheritance tax purposes and they manage the portfolio and make sure that they qualify. Um, but unfortunately, if you're doing it via a, a larger wealth manager, you have to be a client or your advisor has to be a client of this. Okay. Um, and you mentioned those, those portfolios. So generally, how many AIM companies will a typical portfolio include? So this is uh, one thing that I kind of found an issue with. Uh, they tend to be quite concentrated. So they, um, whatever money you're putting in, and the portfolios I've found have, you know, minimum buy requirements of £20,000, £50,000. So you're looking at quite sizable amounts of money. But they normally spread it across 25 to 40 stocks. And the problem you have there is that even though I mentioned there's about 800 stocks available, the portfolios seem to be crowding into very similar stocks. And the reason for this is that you're creating this Venn diagram of companies that have to qualify for BPR, but also make sure that they're not volatile and lose you lots of money. You know, there's no point being exempt from inheritance tax, but then losing half your capital in a, in a bad company. So there seems to be, you know, an issue of kind of crowding. And uh, I mentioned earlier that there was the, the five-year anniversary. So in that five years, since AIM stocks have been allowed to be bought via ISAs, the AIM market has actually outperformed the FTSE all share. But you, com- you compare that with the long-term figures that I mentioned earlier, and you have to question whether that's, on fundamental valuations or whether that's just people chasing IHT exemption. Mm, that's a really good point. And it does sound like it could be a problem. What about other issues about investing in this market? Um, what's the cost of a typical AIM portfolio? 
uh, the other thing to definitely consider um this is this is not cheap so the ones i found that you can buy directly without an advisor you're looking at annual management charges of 1.5 to 2 percent so obviously what you're getting there is you're getting uh, maybe an isa if you, if you want to do it via an isa um but you're getting portfolio management of your isa as well because they're picking the stocks for you there's also dealing charges to consider quite a lot of them have initial charges some as much as four and a half percent so again this is these are quite high figures obviously if you go the other route and go via an advisor you have the advisor fee to consider as well but because it's a bigger industry from the kind of intermediary side but we're using an advisor you would expect to probably get a lower amc but either way there's there's certainly cost to consider here yeah i mean it sounds like the bpr relief against IHT is is attractive but then as you say there's all these potential issues as well so do you really think that they're a good option for people who are looking to reduce inheritance tax? In a, in a certain set of circumstances, yes. Like if you, um, you know, if you are starting to change your portfolio away from retirement income and you are thinking significantly about how much inheritance tax you want to pay and how much you want to leave to your heirs, there's there's a perfectly sensible way to avoid paying inheritance tax. It's it's entirely fine. It's it's perfectly you know it's it's a normal thing to do. Uh, an advisor I speak to, if you you read the piece in the magazine, he he would say no more than fifteen percent just because of the risks of investing in these smaller companies. But if you're into your seventies and you're thinking about IHT, there's there's no reason why this isn't a a reasonable thing to do. Okay, thanks, Taha. And take a look at his article for more detail on AIM IHT products, including a look at the various providers. Not many people in their 80s would shun retirement to launch a new investment trust, but that's exactly what veteran emerging markets investor Mark Mabias plans to do. Taha, please tell us more about this. What's the trust going to be investing in and when's it due to launch? So um, so Mark is going to launch an investment trust for smaller mid-cap emerging markets. So this is, um, if you're a regular listener and a reader of the magazine, you'll know that um, he's launched a new company after leaving Franco Templeton. So this is going to be a second fund different to the large-cap uh, normal open-ended fund that he's launched. But this is going to be smaller mid-cap emerging market stocks with a strong focus on environmental, social and governance reforms. So what they're going to be doing is taking quite big stakes in these small and middle, uh, medium-sized companies uh, with active ownership. So they're going to be working with the management to, to change the business and obviously develop um, capital gains over the long term. It's going to be launched in September. And um, apparently uh, for Mark Mabias, it's not enough being a millionaire. So he's going to call it the Mabias Investment Trust as well. Um, <laughs> you know, some, someone needs... Um, Someone needs an ego to stroke, apparently. <laughs> um, so, um, who will be running the trust? Will it be Mr. Mabias? It will be him, yes, uh, with his two former colleagues from Franklin Templeton that left uh, the company around the same time to launch this new venture. Uh, and that's Carlos and Greg, who have worked with him across a range of funds um, for, for some time. And our readers who were uh, invested in his emerging market funds at Franklin Templeton will know them well. Okay. And in the statement announcing the launch, um, Mr. Mabai said that now would be a great time to buy into emerging markets because the market's fall in, um, so valuations and currencies are lower. What do you think of that argument, Ryan? Well, it's certainly a case that emerging markets are hugely out of favour uh, right now and are, are sitting at quite a substantial discount to the valuation of those um, those developed markets. Uh, I, th- I think the key for any investor looking at emerging markets, and particularly now, uh, is to think about their time horizon. Uh, it's likely in the short term that there, there could be further volatility and, uh, and possibly further weakness uh, in this market. But if you're a long-term investor, and of course we would always advocate that you are, uh, and you're taking a, a good, sensible time horizon, five years minimum, and maybe even longer if 
you're putting this in uh, in your pension, you may be taking a 20, 20 year view, uh, then I think the emerging markets could look very attractive right now. Okay. And what do you think about this new trust generally? Do you think it's going to offer something different to what's available in the market? Yeah, I think it's, it's always nice to see some innovation uh, in, in the market. We've, we're looking here at a trust that's specifically said it will focus on, on mid and small, uh, smaller companies, uh, which is a positive. They've also talked about the fact that they'll incorporate some frontier market companies, so those those markets that are that are outside of uh, of the emerging markets and perhaps a little bit less developed. Uh, and, and that focus on on ESG is 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 relatively new, uh, becoming more popular. Uh, but in but in the emerging market space, is still quite early. So it's offering a few different interesting things and uh, and the managers come with a big reputation. So it will be interesting to see uh, both how much in terms of assets they raise and then how the trust does in its early days. Yes, definitely. And we were talking earlier about the slump in the emerging markets. What are the reasons for this? The main the main reason comes back to currency markets and uh, and the strong dollar, uh, and also the trade war, notably between uh, well say the U.S. and China, but pretty much the U.S. and everyone uh, seems to be uh, seems to be the the problem. Uh, but those con- some of these countries have issued a huge amount of their debt uh, in dollars. Uh, because that was easier for them to to raise funding, uh, and uh, and these countries such as Turkey and Brazil and t- uh, to some extent uh, India uh, that they've they've really been struggling because uh, of the movement in the currency markets is making those repayments more expensive, and we're seeing particular challenge right now uh, in Turkey uh, where its currency is pretty much in freefall uh, against uh, against the dollar uh, and other uh, and other. Uh, currencies in fact just looking uh, looking today if you look at uh, buying a barrel of oil uh, in turkey uh, it will now cost you four hundred dollars uh, whereas three years ago it only cost you one hundred dollars uh, so it's wow. a huge impact on uh, on an economy and a relatively small economy um, that's a really very stark mm. <laughs> example of that i mean doesn't this kind of highlight some of the risks of investing in emerging markets i know you were saying um, it depends on your time horizon but I mean, isn't isn't emerging markets just generally more volatile? History has borne out that that emerging markets are more volatile. Uh, there is more risk that comes with it, but equally, we've seen if you get the right the right market and the right company, that the rewards can be can be very attractive. I think as long as you know those points when you go into investing in these in these markets, then that that's absolutely fine. Uh, but it's important that you understand those those characteristics. At the start, uh, you also have to understand that there might be less uh, quality corporate governance, uh, that those reporting standards and those accounting standards might not be quite as high, uh, and that the information flow might not be quite as good. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, that they're all bad, and uh, we actually have about 23% of our highest risk portfolio that we, we run in emer- invested in emerging markets. Okay. And where are you invested in? What kind of funds or trusts do you use for exposure? So we use a couple of different... Uh, um, strategies. So we have a, both a passive uh, and, and active strategies. In the passive side, we're using uh, an iShares uh, Emerging Markets ETF. Or on the active side, a couple of funds that we like and we use uh, would be the Fidelity Emerging Markets Fund managed by Nick Price, uh, who's a very experienced manager uh, and uh, particularly focused on uh, emerging Asia uh, and also parts of uh, emerging Europe. Uh, and then another, tr- another fund we like is the Jupiter Global Emerging Markets Fund. Uh, that's a fund a little bit different. It, it looks at the frontier markets as well as emerging markets. And then for those that like investment trusts, uh, I would say something like the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Trust would be interesting to look at. Got a very long-term track record uh, and currently sits at a 12% discount, which might be interesting for some investors. That's great. Thanks very much, Ryan. 
That brings us to the end of today's show. But you can read more about AIM share portfolios and Mark McBias's new investment trust on the website and in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.